my journey to missions is really an um, uh, unlikely one. I studied engineering. My goal in life was not to be in ministry or missions. I wanted to make it in life. I was probably planning to be in San Jose doing the, the tech uh, uh, company kind of uh, world. But long story short, God called me into missions. Um, I was actually, before going to missions, I worked at places like um, Boeing, making, well, back then it was uh, defense-related, making missiles. And then um, solar, it changed over to completely different kind of things, solar energy research in Boston. Um, with my background in engineering and management as my master's, that was my goal in life, was going to make it. But God had a different plan, and I ended up uh, being called into ministry. Uh, went to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in Boston area, where they didn't know, in that area back then, didn't know Buddhist, Baptist, what's the difference? You know, different religions, I, I think that's all they knew. So I got involved with, it, uh, with ministry among young people and experienced God's wave, many people coming to know the Lord. My wife and I actually, our first experience, well, we got married and immediately went on a mission trip to Thailand where we spent two, two months during our seminary years. Um, and eventually that led us into life toward missions. Currently, I'm serving uh, in Indonesia, a country that is quite uh, fourth largest in terms of population. I'll share a little bit more about that. But let's... Um, let me go right into the, uh, our text here for a minute, to the ends of the earth. Let me show you, a, this, see this jungle here? I took that picture about 5 a.m., maybe 5.30, with a little bit of a, what we call our training center. It's on the equator, on the island of Borneo, right on the equator. As there was a prayer meeting that finished, and as I came out, jungles right on the uh, equator. Uh, that is as remote as you could get. I mean, there are places you can be more remote, but that's pretty remote, right into the jungle. And I'll tell you a story about that, why it's to the ends of the earth. Uh, Jesus, today's a Palm Sunday. And if you could imagine, Palm Sunday begins the Passion Week, right? And Jesus is riding on a donkey. People are lining up the streets, putting palm trees or palm leaves on the, on, on the ground so that Jesus will ride over on top of it. Some of them were put, putting their cloaks right on the ground so that Jesus would ride, go over their cloak as a means of receiving blessing. And yet, four days later, he would be betrayed. He would face all kinds of hardship, sacrifice, beating, and ultimately on Friday uh, the, to the cross. Tremendous things are going to happen. But on this day, he's entering Jerusalem as a hero, as a, as a great, great uh, messianic figure. Four days later, completely changed. And then on Sunday, the resurrection would come. As we consider this week as important, despite the numbing effects of commercialism, numbing effects of day-to-day -day life, and maybe even numbing effects of sin, we sometimes forget what it means to remember what Lord has done for us. I hope this will be an opportunity for us. Okay? Uh, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. But the important part that I didn't put in here was 17. Jesus had appeared to many disciples, and many believed, but some doubted. That's verse 17. Some doubted. 
And then verse 18, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And I, am, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. That's Jesus' promise. And 2,000 years later, how should we live and what should we do in light of that command? He's last. Okay. Would you come uh, join with me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your kindness, your mercy, your great provision. More than anything else, your Son, Jesus, who gave his life for us, that we might live a life in the newness of the risen Savior's power and authority and live it in such a way that we could experience you and the awesome adventure and journey with you. Thank you for this church that desires to live out the community as brothers and sisters in Christ to make a difference in this generation and live it in authentic ways so that your glory will be manifested. And ask, Lord, that you will speak to our hearts today as we open our minds and our hearts toward you. And, Lord, that we may be attentive to your voice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, unreached people groups, you might have heard some of it and seen some of this already, but just to give you a kind of refresher, this is called the 1040 window, and you, you, you know this 10 degrees above the equator, 40 degrees above the equator, this whole window that covers the whole earth, uh, let's call 1040 window, and in effect, 10 degrees, 65% uh, of the world population and 95% of unreached peoples and 90% of the world's poor live in this window. It's also home to majority of the world's Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists. There are some exceptions. If you see South Korea here, that, you know, it's not exactly considered unreached. So, but you get the idea. That's generalizing. And Muslim nation of Indonesia is right under it. It's also quite unreached, but not quite in the window. But by and large, right through China, uh, through India, through Sub-Saharan Africa, Saudi Arabia, pa Pakistan, all of this area, this the, the most unreached people groups live in, 95% of them live there. Question is, how do we reach? What does it mean when Jesus said, take, make, make disciples of all nations? And how do we do that? Why is it 2,000 years later, 95% of the people in that group, where 65% of the population live and 90% of the poor people live, are still to be reached? It's a great homework. Um, earlier, Wage showed you in color-coded terms of where the unreached people groups are. Uh, let me show you a little bit of uh, numbers, actually. So India has 2,533 people groups. People group meaning different language, different culture. The gospel has not penetrated yet. Um, there are still 2,222 people groups unreached, or 88% of the population of the country. Pakistan is the second one, 463 people groups total, 448 still unreached, 97% unreached. China, I think you got the picture earlier, 516 people groups, 427 unreached, 83%. Now, some of these people groups are small, mind you. Some places in uh, Vietnam, for example, there are only like 20,000, but there's no witness whatsoever. So depending on which country where, many, uh, many of the people groups are small. That's part of the reason why they're unreached. Nepal is next, 
And where I am, Indonesia, 784 people groups. So this is probably second in terms of number-wise. Uh, 200 people groups are unreached, 26%. Give you a little bit of an idea. In Indonesia in particular, this is the equator right here. So this part is island called Borneo where I mentioned to you. That's like jungle. There are three places in the world when you see from a satellite at night, it's dark. One of the places is North Korea. It's dark. Another place is Sub-Saharan Africa. It's dark. Borneo Island is dark. It's jungle. Relative, fairly uh, difficult to reach. So it has 17,000 islands, 88% Islam, give or take, 7% Christian, marginally, and then others. There are 17,000 islands. If you try to visit every island, it'll take years. It's a difficult place because of ge geography. Um, for our work, I just want to share with you a little bit. It's kind of a holistic uh, approach. christ Center. there's a spiritual aspect that involves uh, church planting, that involves um, training. There's also the educational component. There are places where people can't read. There are also places where if you have a church, You've got to do more than just church. There needs to be educational component. And then another is what I call social health. There are places where you can't really reach with uh, church planning or the doors are closed, so you have to go in with a different, uh, different method and often orphanages, uh, medical care, health care. And the last part is leadership development. Ultimately, any nation, any group, any church. What kind of leadership you have will determine what kind of group that will become. If you have a great leader, prosperous, great leadership. And then if you have corrupt leadership, as 1040 window will show, most of the places are, have highest corruption indexes as well. Indonesia is among the top. People suffer. Okay? So leadership development is very important. So in our case, there are about what we call five major islands, Sumatra, I don't know if you remember, about 10 years ago, Bande Aceh, there was a great tsunami. A lot of people perished here. And because of that great tsunami, people thought we're not being pious enough. That area became Sharia law region, only region where Sharia law supersedes national law. Sumatra, Kalimantan, or Bor the whole island is Borneo. This part is Malaysia. This part is Indonesian. Indonesians call their part Kalimantan. Java, this sounds like coffee names, right? Java, <laughs> Sumatra. Now you know where the names come from, okay? okay it's not just, oh, it happened, they happen to name the country after coffee. It comes from there, okay? okay. By the way, Bali is a, not a nation. It's a, it's a little island here. So I don't know, how many of you have been to Bali? Some of you, okay? Then you know Indonesia. Some people, are, is that, where's Indonesia? Is it that near Bali? I said, yeah, I could say that. Okay. Um, Sumatra, Kalimantan, Java, Sulawesi, Irian Jaya, or Papua. Okay. These are five major islands, but these two islands over here, 70% of the population live, or approximately uh, 250 million people live in Indonesia. Fourth largest pop, uh, in terms of population, fourth largest in the world. First, China, India, United States, and Indonesia. Okay. A lot of people. So there are about 1,000 islands where it's inhabited. Although 17,000 islands, 1,000 islands are actually inhabited. And 70% of the population live right here, millions of people. Um, 
give you an idea of the capital, Jakarta, you can see the picture. Downtown is, is like any, any metropolis, a lot of tall buildings, and it's a developing world. So unlike here, I could see ev- almost every week there's a new building that goes up, new building. So rapid development, a lot of change. And, and the, the city is um, designed the old Dutch colony. Streets are narrow, but the buildings go up. Regulation for environmental impact is non-existent. So the traffic is a nightmare. A uh, thousand motorcycles are added each day of the year. And multiply that by 10, 20 years and you get the idea. So what they're d- designing is what, what they call a mall complex condo office flex in one. There's a mall, school, uh, office building, apartment building. You don't have to go anywhere. You could just stay where you are and live. <laughs> so they got 50 of these kind of setups all over the city. It's a tough place sometimes. The traffic, the, 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 what do you call it, the, the, the smog and the fumes, it's a tough place. But that's where the jobs are located. That's where people are coming. It's a great opportunity. Okay. In the rural parts are like this. You see this mountain? On the side of the mountain, that's not cloud, by the way. That's smoke coming out of the side of the mountain. Volcanic uh, islands are made out of volcanoes. Uh, in the ancient days. So the whole Indonesia, soil is very good. Topsoil is very rich because all volcanic eruptions happen every year in different places. People die too, but also it covers the land with rich minerals. And so Indonesia can, Indonesia can harvest four, you know, Asia is all rice, right? Four rice planting per year. They could produce more rice than any other country, but because of corruption and lack of infrastructure development, um, people are poor. Okay. Leadership makes a difference. Now they have a good president named Jokowi as a common man. He's really developing infrastructure, so things are changing rapidly. But you get an idea, that's countryside, many volcanoes in Indonesia. And in some of the, uh, the country ta- countryside towns and, and villages, they have markets like this. In the cities where you saw, they have supermarkets, but in the countryside, regular markets like that. So there's a huge difference in the standard of living. Um, some of the things, some of, I'll share, there's so much to share, I'm going to try to compact it down. What does it mean to make disciples? This is a question I've wrestled with in a place like Indonesia. So many people, so high class, low class, the gap between the two is just heaven to earth, huge differences. How do we reach, who do we reach, in what ways? I showed you four so- circles, right? Spiritual, education, social health, and then leadership. This part is, for example, social health part. This area, Kobumi Inda, is a very uh, strong Muslim area. You can't do church planting, at least not in any sense of the way you know, we think of it. Even when we were starting this orphanage, um, rocks would fly, and then some guy on a, a motorcycle would come and start threatening with loud noise, what are you doing here? Uh, enduring uh, some of these kind of things, our people still continued and, and started with a small house, bought a small house, and then had some kids in it. Um, but construction in, in these parts are not up to code. And so the ceiling began to crumble, or the things began to fall. You got kids living in there. This is no way to do, if there's any kind of crash, that, which does happen, uh, that would... Uh, tremendously impact our witness. 
so we to tear them down. So this is what the house looks like. It looks decent on the outside with the painting, but you can see the on the side it, where it's kind of crumbling right here, or it's it just painted over. But the ceiling was coming down, so we took tore this down, and then we had some kids, and we were praying, Lord, we want to raise a, a, a nice structure. And so with the support of, uh, of some of the churches and, and, and uh, foundations, we began to build um, a new structure that looks nicest. If you're going to have orphans in there, you're gonna have, we want to make sure that their sense of esteem is you, don't, you, you may be, be orphans, but not necessarily hopeless. You're going to live in a nice place. We wanted to build up their esteem. So concrete cement building, whereas all the others were like the picture you saw earlier. And so even during the construction, like I said, the standards are a little bit more loose, so we're having some activities and gatherings. <laughs> um, normally, that wouldn't happen here, right? <laughs> but kids are excited. Um, we're having, you know, this, as it's getting built, you can see that little girl standing next to a, a drainage. <laughs> Not a safest thing. <laughs> but uh, we're having, like, afternoon uh, competitions and activities. You see the kid with the back little uh, thing going into the bottle. If you drop a pen, there's a pencil tied to it, and you drop it into that uh, bottle, small neck bottle, then you get a prize, like the girl ho is holding. So we're, have, we're holding things like this, and then the building finally got comp completed, at least the first floor. We still need to build the second and third floor to house all the kids who could live there. Because of the construction, we had to send the kids away and just run uh, activities, day activities. We're praying God would provide second and third floors. Um, in order to actually bring the kids back. Orphans in Indonesia are different than orphans that we think of. Typically, we think of orphans as kids who lost mom and dad, right? But in places like Indonesia, sometimes dads run away, and moms, mom can't take care of four, five, six, seven kids. As a, as a woman, as a one person, it's difficult enough surviving to take care of all of them. That's not possible in many cases. So they will bring kids to... An, uh, what we call, it's called an orphanage, but what I call economic orphans, as well as those who've lost parents. Okay? And we don't distinguish the two. In, in Indonesia, it's, they're the same. So sometimes, uh, the pastor that my partner, Indonesian partner pastor, he grew up in an orphanage. Not that he didn't have mom or dad. Dad took off, mom couldn't raise. So orphanages, by the way, they can't take everybody, so they if you try to send siblings, keep them together into orphanage, they said, no, we can't take both here. We can only take one of you. So this pastor, Pastor Gunnar, his brother went to one orphanage. He went to another orphanage and grew up. So he has this tremendous burden for orphans. They said, John, I want to really um, you know, care for the orphans. So I said, okay, if, if you have that God's calling, I'm with you. So together we built the, we started building step by step. So we have economic orphans who have only one and maybe a brother or sister another place, another place. So imagine what that does to families. Uh, but we want to provide the best possible opportunity for discipleship. Because when you live with kids, then they can become Christians. Like Pastor Gunnar, my national partner, he can make a tremendous difference. So looking at a potential like that, we're starting with a, an orphanage. And then... When hearts and minds are open and the neighbors are open, they're doing good work, then we're going to start a small cell group, which hopefully will lead to a church step by step. Okay, so in places where it's restricted, 
we have to start where we can, and often it is social health education. Okay. We also run a, um, give you an idea, we also run a school, uh, preschool kindergarten. This is a team from San Francisco who came to put together an uh, English camp. How do we build good relationship with our neighbors? I said, you know what, if we do English camp and invite all the neighborhood kids, they're going to hopefully will open, open their hearts or their parents. So we had all set this up last year, actually. And all the neighbors said, okay, we'll be there. We're expecting like sev 70 people. First day, only 20 kids show up. I said, what's going on? We have a team from America came all the way. These are people who are working at Google and, and, and Twitter, and all these people took out their precious two weeks to come and serve, and only 20 kids show up. I'm like, okay, what's, what am I going to do here? So we looked, look, looked around, and parents thought, if we send our kids there, they're going to brainwash them, our kids and make, turn them into Christians. That's the reaction. Um, so I said, okay, team, do the best you can with the kids who came. Kids who came, 20 of them, there was, they had such fun time because what they're doing summer uh, English camp in the morning. In the afternoon, we said, we're going to do Bible camp, like, like VBS. So those who are willing to come in the afternoon, VBS. Well, kids came to English camp, no Bible at all. One, two, three in English, A, B, C, D, cat, mouse, head, shoulder, <laughs> knee, the songs and dance and all of it. They were so excited. They came in the afternoon as well. And next day, they brought their kids, despite the parents' objections. You know, kids bring their kids, right? Their friends. So 20 became 40, 40 became 60, 70, 80 kids came by the time it, we ended. And opened, heart, opened the hearts of parents in that neighborhood uh, toward us, how they think of us as not just these crusaders who comes to conquer kind of idea. There's a tremendous bias against Christians. Uh, in, a, in a difficult area to reach through education, through outreaches. So what happened was, I just want to share with you, this church in San Francisco came and served here for only a short time. Many missionaries spend their lifetime to reach one person for Christ. And that's a maybe if. During that time, we put our, uh, our, our staff together so, to help translate. And some of the kids were sharing, you know, I, did, I thought God was in the mosque only. But God is everywhere. That's what they've learned. I want to be a, f a follower of this God in Christ. Again, kids began to confess. Our staff members are shedding tears because they never experienced Muslims turning to Christ. Here's, a, here's children who are so moved and so touched and so excited. They say, I want to be a follower of Christ. The U.S. team didn't ha have any idea what's happening. <laughs> so I gathered them together and shared. You, you are being part of a history-making event that many missionaries spend their whole lifetime desiring to see one. And these are kids. And you guys are here for one or two weeks and experiencing. This is incredible. Our staff were there just tearing, tearing up as well. God used a very short-term, most effective way to reach kids. And we experienced history-making in the heart of difficult Muslim area. God is doing incredible things. You know, typically summer teams come and do their thing and go home. Okay? And it was good experience. I mean, you know, God works through that too. But this strategically and the spirit of God moving at the same time, opening doors, uh, can make a difference. Okay, so I just wanted to share with you this part. What does it mean to make disciples of all nations? In a case like this, even a short-term team from the U.S. can make a big difference. Next time I want to bring a healthcare team to 
be able to minister to this neighborhood. The parents, their hearts will change. We have in plans to put together a, a school that's already, uh, we need to get registered, but registration by Muslim government officials don't come easy either. We don't want to pay them off either. So we're stuck. Hopefully the next team that can come and serve the community and community will together will say, you know, these guys are okay. Then the school can be, get registered step by step. We can make a difference. So make disciples of all nations. So you see that in a, in a case in a Muslim area. But I want to share also in a remote area. It's Papua is a very far away. But Wade earlier shared with you a definition about what does it, what, what's an unreached people group. For the past 20, 30 years, this was the definition. Less than or equal to 2% evangelical Christian and less than or equal to 5% professing Christians. You know, but there are cultural Christians who are open, af have affinity, but not necessarily Christ-following. So that's been the definition. More recently, in the last five years or so, definitions have been up updated a little bit. And so I, I kind of use both. 2% is a kind of arbitrary number. Nobody said there's any basis for it. It's just an arbitrary now, so it's more, more of this, and unreached or least reached people is a people group among which there is no indigenous community of believing Christians with adequate numbers and resources to evangelize this people group without outside assistance. So that's a more descriptive term. So if there are some Christians, it could be 2%, 10%, however, whatever, but if they can't really be strong enough to reach others in, in their own community, then it's still considered unreached. With that in mind, let me show you what, what it means. Papua, Irianjaya, is here. From Jakarta to here, it takes about seven hours by plane. From here in Sumatra to Irianjaya, three time zones, LA to New York distance. A lot of water in between, a lot of islands in between. So it's not a small country. Um, so Irianjaya, or Papua, at the end, is... I want to share with you, what does it mean to make disciples? Eight hours by plane, several trips. We have a seminary in Jakarta. We send our students on internships, typically for a year. Here we're sending them for a six-month internship from Jakarta to Jayapura, Papua. Eight hours by plane, one and a half hours into the jungle by helicopter, because there's no other way, and to reach a Danawagi uh, jungle village and, and to serve the unreached people group called Korowai. And because um, there's no road, I think this is kind of a river here. So from, you know, t picture from uh, the airplane, 800 kilograms of supply for six months. Um, it's interesting because um, after the plane lands and you, you have to get to a helicopter pad, there's called a missionary group called uh, Aviation Missionary Fellowship. All they do is help missionaries go to the remote places by helicopter or small planes. So there's no other way to get there. So they helped us. cost a lot of money, but 800 kilograms. We sent three students six months into the nowhere, <laughs> into the hinterland. No cell phone, no internet, no TV, no nothing. <laughs> no need for money. You couldn't use it anyway. 800 kilograms of supplies and food and said, please survive, okay? And when we come back and pick you up, we hope there'd be three people to pick up. If not, we know what happened, okay? So the instruction was, dig a grave first, and then if you don't need to use it, come back. 
I say this with a laugh, but you, you realize the seriousness of this. I went to a seminary in the U.S. This will never fly. <laughs> Even as we sent our, 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 our interns there, after three years, they have to go on an internship. And this, we hesitated. Because really, if you catch something in the jungle, and which often happens, uh, you may not return and we may not know. I think we send a, uh, somebody will go in three months later to check up and get some news. And until then, we will not know. It's serious. What does it mean to reach the unreached people group. Sometimes it requires sacrifice. Jesus came from heaven to this unbelievably ignorant and rejecting people called us mainly, humanity, and required a sacrifice. So when he says, when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, go, therefore, and make disciples. And Jesus set the example for us. As a church of God, um, some will make the sacrifice. This is the picture. Kids are learning how to stand straight. It takes about half an hour to teach them what, what the concept of straight line. Okay. On the right, I'm sorry, on the, on the left side, or the right side, so, so this, these three seminary interns were doing Sunday school, and then they realized, oh, there's no service. So they never preached before, but they were leading uh, Sunday worship. <laughs> and then, oh, we have to educate. Oh, how do we do this? So they invited all the second grade level, come, we're going to teach you alphabet, you know, Indonesian alphabet. So the kids came from three-year-olds <laughs> all the way to a man who brought two kids. And instead of enrolling two kids, his two kids, he enrolled himself, I want to learn. Um, that's the condition. This is the most memorable part why I decided, okay, we can't ignore this group because see this here? With the cell phone battery that was running out of its last leg of the battery life, and once that goes, that's it. There's no way to recharge. Our student took a picture at sunset at, as the sun was going down. And kids were trying to study, even as it was getting dark. It's quite dark. They're trying to study. People are wanting to learn, to, to grasp something, to hold on to some. How do we simply say, no, it's too hard? Somebody has to risk. Someone has to be willing. How do we make disciples of all nations, of every people group? Sometimes... We have to risk losing people in order to gain. But you know what? In the history of missions, it's always about willingness to lay down one's life in order to gain a life. Jesus' willingness to lay down his life in order to gain life. That's what it means to make disciples in this part of the world. Uh, and Lack of health care, obviously. So you can see the, the swollen eye, the kid's swollen foot. There's no uh, antibiotics. So what happens often is if the if foot gets infected because they you know, uh, uh, run into a sharp wood or piece, no medicine. If it gets infected, you have to amputate. That's the only solution. So a lot of people with uh, missing parts. And they still practice, by the way, I don't know if you heard of a Papua. 
40 years ago, 30 to 40 years ago, they were still cannibals, many, so many of them. So what they do is, see, you know, they're practicing, uh, uh, you see these arrows here? In the, in the old days, they would take an arrow dipped in a poison and shoot at the enemy, and then if, if it hits them, it won't kill them right away, but they would go and, and eventually die because of poison. To spite the enemy, we conquer you. The idea is to eat them, I'll eat them, eat their bodies. So that, these group of cannibals, 30, 40 years, some missionaries come in and began to share the gospel, and many have turned to Christ. What you see here is not the actual event, but the ceremony of you know, still we're victorious. <laughs> you know, that kind of uh, ceremony. That's, this is how they would dress up. Okay? This is the background. So missionaries from the Western world will not survive very long in, in places like that. But those who have come from difficult areas in Indonesia, and we train them in our seminary and send them off places, many places that Western or outside people really can't survive for very long. So three young people have gone in. We pray for their safety, for their protection. And then when the helicopter went in to pick them up, thank God, three of them came back. <laughs> and then at the uh, uh, all-school retreat, they came and shared. And as, as I was uh, sitting there and listening to their testimony, I could sense the whole school was in tears. And there was a revival meeting. And what, that, what happened was the three of them said and asked for two things. Number one, please, when we finish and graduate, send us back because they really need us. Number two, they need teachers, someone to teach them how to read so that they could read the Bible. So please send teachers. And half the class raised hands and we want to go. Okay. Okay. What does it mean to make disciples of all nations? In a context like this, really willingness to lay it all in order to win the prize that souls that Jesus came to die for and to raise up. Okay. I'm not suggesting right now that all of you go into jungles, but consider what in whatever context that you're in, how do we obey this great commission? Okay. Um, make disciples of all nations, Kalimantan. That's the Borneo jungle I told you about, Kalimantan. Right on the border... We have a ministry. Uh, there are not many roads there, so the best highway is this river. And typically, if you take a boat and up the river, two hours, there's a village. Four hours, village. Eight hours, village. Ten hours, village. Village often is anywhere from 200 people to even up to 800 people. In those areas, there are not many schools. Maybe a government could put in an elementary school at best, but beyond that, there's nothing else. And then there are some roads that are typically like dirt road. Um, but when it rains, it becomes dirt trap or, or mud trap. You can't go in. If you go in, you can't come out. Um, I had a couple of weeks, a month ago, we had a group that went in, got stuck in the mud, and they missed the plane because they couldn't come out. So places like that. Uh, but it's also a very rich country. You know what this is? See this right here? You know what they're doing? It's a rubber tree. You bleed the rubber tree and rubber... Uh, comes down and goes into a bucket like this. See this? You collect the rubber, you sell it, it's money. These grow like weeds in the backyard of our, of our complex, of our center. Can you imagine in your backyard, there are trees full of uh, uh, basically cash coming, falling down? <laughs> okay. Now, why would you want to spend so much life worrying about money and, and how to make it and how to keep it and how to invest all that? 
one's practically falling down from your backyard. How many of you want to volunteer to come and live here? Uh, just the polite smiles, right? <laughs> Cash is falling from your backyard and you don't want to go, right? Indonesia is the most resource-rich country in the world. Rubber, palm, palm oil, petrol, uh, diamonds, copper. The second or first largest copper mine is in Indonesia, Papua. Oh, so much resource, four times the rice planting, and yet it's poor. Why? Proper leadership makes a difference. If we have some good leadership, it makes a difference. Okay, well, moving on. So there, there's preschool, kindergarten, and we're helping a, helping a local Indonesian pastor who really has, has a vision, and so we came along uh, to work with him and also uh, 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 built a training center where we gather local pastors for training as well. This is junior high and high school, and I'm testing, testing them in the English class. It's called class Bahasa Inggris. Uh, see if the kids are really learning, and some of them are pretty good. Can you imagine in the middle of jungle learning English? Okay. Um, this is their breakfast. Large um, wood stove, uh, make breakfast, and kids uh, pray, dressed up, 7 a.m., four or five spoons of porridge for breakfast, and that's it. They're junior high and high school kids. You can see the wood in the background that's used for cooking. Can we get some voice here, volume? <laughs> 4 a.m. Teenagers, junior and senior high school students, praying, waking the dawn. First picture I showed you about the jungle. Right after this prayer meeting, I got outside and sun was beginning to rise, took a picture in the middle of jungle. So 4 a.m., I'm going from, this is where you have to get through the dirt road to get in. So I, I came from outside, little town, uh, and they started driving in, pitch black. 4 a.m., you could see the Milky Way completely. Remember, it's one of the darkest, but you could see actually the Milky Way going. Come in, and then all of a sudden, in the middle of the jungle, there's brightens up. And in this chapel, gathers 160 kids, early morning prayer. We are partnering with this local pastor, and he's got this great vision. I said, okay, we want to come along and support and work with you. So we sent our interns to serve as like a big brother, big sister for these junior high and senior high school kids. And we sent and other, other graduates as well. No mall, no internet, no cell phone. They're like blank pages. Imagine teenagers from 7th grade to 12th grade, blank pages to write on. Whatever you write into their lives becomes that. It's remote. The government, the Islam, Islamists can't come in and check out what, I mean, they don't know it exists. So we have an opportunity. It's shielded by jungle and remoteness. This kind of training going on. So they get their education. They get the spiritual training. Live in together. Because remember I told you about the river highway? You can't commute four hours back and forth every day, not to mention the expenses. So the kids are brought in from jungle villages to study here and live here, trained by uh, Christian teachers. 
and our interns and graduates as big brothers and big sisters and spiritual mentoring. When they grow up, they could become governors, preachers, teachers, business people for Kalimantan. Remember how, how, how I share with you? Leadership makes a difference. If we raise up solid leaders, uncorrupted by corrupt cultures and practices of the, the normal culture there, they could have a sense of value system with integrity. In 20 years, they can make a big difference in the island of Borneo. Millions of people. God could raise up leaders. How do we make disciples in the most unlikely places? But you know, it does take funds in order to raise up people like that. And so we're trying to support uh, ministries like this. And I want to build schools in the jungles and remote places where we won't be bothered. We're going to send our seminary graduates to teach and, and, and work with local pastors there. That work is going on. At the same time, how do we make this sustainable? That's a big question for us because it takes a lot of money to house, feed, educate a good number of uh, students. Let me just go on. And uh, the, the old balded man is a former uh, provost, number two person at Biola University, Dr. Gary Miller. He's also the man who signed my PhD dissertation. Uh, he, after Biola, he went to Jakarta, Indonesia, of a large university as the president. So he was scouted in. Indonesian university wanted to bring their standards to international level, so they brought in some Western leadership. So he was, he was uh, brought in, recruited as the president. And, you know, in difficult, in Muslim, Islam con Islamic countries, it's difficult to get visas. So tent maker, if you go in as, a, as an educator, and he tapped me as his VP. So I went in there in 2010, vice president of a large university, uh, worked with him. Uh, that opened a lot of doors for us uh, and began the ministry there, in fact. He retired, when, came back, and he's completely retired, but he came back this year, last year? Um, yeah, last year, looked at the very village and the very school that I've just shared with you, and he says, John, God is doing something special here, and I want to be part of it. So he's my partner in the U.S. of how do we do this ministry, and how do we do this to support what's going on in Islamic country where there's still opportunities. So he, I, I, in fact, I got to meet with him tomorrow morning and help him because he really wants to serve and, and I need to provide him a way to channel his knowledge, experience, and all the network he has for God's kingdom purpose. God is hitting people all over the world <laughs> in every place. Anyway, this is a dormitory with kids. I helped build uh, with the help actually of, uh, of a foundation. Um, build a, built a dormitory and this is how kids take a shower in the morning. They go into a little a ditch or a, a creek, not even clean. And, and take a shower there. So we're helping uh, build a, a clean dorm uh, bathroom facilities. Two tons of rice per month to feed everybody. And they don't eat very much other than rice. Uh, another is uh, our graduates go and start uh, preschools and kindergartens like this. Look at the little kids. How they all, hands are like this. 30 minutes before teacher shows up. Teacher is preparing coconut, you know, you know coconut, they cut the top off and there's a drink. So teacher is, we're having guests from America come to this remote village in, 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 in Indonesian jungle. They've never seen outsiders. <laughs> so teacher with parents are cutting coconut, getting the food ready. And kids are all lined up at a, a shack schoolhouse, literally a schoolhouse, 
open the door, and they all come in and sit like this, attention. Have you seen that in America? <laughs> Your kids like that? I was shocked. These kids, without being told, they all line up, and they, so I got to meet this teacher, one, one of our graduates. What, what does he do? <laughs> I mean, he's got them like feeding, you know, right out of his hands. He's, the kids are, it's like, he's good. Um, so with the help of the foundation, some of these kids are being supported. Um, there's no school there. So when we plant a school, we're able to write on a blank page of these kids what, what they can become. Learning. Right? And uh, being kids being kids. <laughs> okay. Very normal. Okay. Uh, making disciples even in the jungles. I want to share a little bit about the island of Java. Oh, okay. I'm going to speed it up a little bit here. Unreached people group. The man in the white is called from a tribe called um, Badui. Badui tribe. Badui tribe is a special tribe. They live in a separate area. Even in a Java island is a, a very heavy, strongest uh, Muslim area. But these people group decided to reject Islam. So hundreds of years ago, they close their community off and live in a separate, like an Indian reservation. That's the idea. They, they self-segregated, inner, outer, Badui. So nobody, there's no Christian, and nobody could come in and live inside. So they rejected any kind of outside. There's one Korean-American missionary from Chicago, a lady, 60 years old, plus 60 plus. She's, she can't speak the language, but she built a house, and then it started inviting and just talking gibberish. <laughs> And when, when, the, when the Islamic officials tried to kind of uh, resist her, said, and she, just was, she was just talking English and just yelling out. And so they said, here's an old lady, crazy old lady. I'll just let her be. So she built a house. And then she invited our se- seminary to come and, and, and do the work because she can't really, you know, she can't walk these long distances. There's no road. She has to walk, and her, her knees are giving out. So we sent our se- graduates to begin ministry and beginning people are beginning to express interest. Completely, 100% unreached. There are opportunities God is giving us. And people are thirsty for Christ. Uh, I'm running out of time, so I'm going to skip here. Here in the last Christmas, we invited, we have what's called uh, KBS, which is a good news club. Good news club. So we go into Islamic uh, villages, and then have a, if there's one Christian family, we would go in and say, we want to do a Bible club. Not Bible club, good news club. We have to be careful the words we use. And then kids from local area, 10, 20, or whatever, in a small little living room. I say living room, it's more like a closet. Kids would gather. And sometimes when I visit, there's mosque, mosque, and mosque. And at 6 o'clock, mosque would all go up in their evening prayer. And then kids are singing and praising the Lord. We have 25 of these uh, good news clubs going on in Muslim neighborhoods by our seminary students. And then on Christmas, we invite all of them to our seminary, have a Christmas event, and we directly share the gospel, and kids come to know the Lord. So this is one of the events like that, 300-plus kids. So how do we make disciples in our context? This is what, I have no interest in seminary. You know why? Because it's so expensive. (laughs) It takes a lot of money. And uh, marginally effective, I think. So instead, what, I f- what we focus, <laughs> yeah, I'm talking about myself here, okay. Um, 
discipleship center. So we had an opportunity to bring these young people, 18 through 22, 23-year-olds, to live together for five years. We have a, through the Bible, one week just reading the Bible all day long, okay, reading the Bible time, 4.30 morning prayer. Young people from different islands all come together, different language, different culture. They come together and pray together. And sometimes, you know, when you're different languages, you how do you become one in Christ when you pray? In our reconcile with one another seminary students so this is how we train our people where I can't go where outsiders can't go these young people some of them come from very poor areas get trained in our capital mission center and sent out to different islands to reach the unreached people groups and strengthen our Christian base as well God is always at work and invites us to join him in what he's doing. And if we're, you know, for, for me, it's really, it's, the, it's a privilege, nothing what I've done, but what God is already doing, and I'm just blessed to be on the wave. And when you're on the wave, it's a thrill. It's the most exciting thing, riding the wave together with um, locals. Okay. And this is a picture. Okay. I think maybe up to you, I have to uh, yeah. Okay. Um, let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for our time together, and we ask that you open our hearts on this Palm Sunday. You're an awesome and great God who wants to do great things through your people. May you use us, Lord, as uh, people all over the world are thirsty and hungry. And you have given us means and wherewithal to make an impact here at the local church and to the ends of the earth. Use us for your kingdom purposes as souls await those who would come. And help us, Lord, to be a partner with our risen Savior so that from here to the ends of the earth that the name of Jesus be exalted and people of God rise together for his kingdom purposes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.